0: Hi, everybody. I'm Brian Norcross, and welcome to podcast number seven. We're taping this on August 1st, 2018, and we're kicking off the heart of the hurricane season here. I'm, I'm here along with my partner, Luke Doris, meteorologist here on WPLG. Podcast seven, Luke, in the beginning of August.
1: Here we go. Uh, (laughs) Been up for 24 hours, so I apologize (laughs) if I'm not making the most sense today. But here we are, number seven. And uh, yeah, we're getting into the heart, uh, the peak. Not necessarily starting the peak. Starting starting the upward climb.
0: Of the likelihood of having a hurricane. But but, uh, here in South Florida, actually, it's not real common to have a hurricane in August. Hurricane. Andrew, notwithstanding, there's only really one other, Clio, and we'll we'll talk about that later. Really, in South Florida, September and October Mm. are the months for hurricanes, but that's not necessarily true all around the hurricane coast. And today, we're going to be joined by Levi Cowan. Now, you may not recognize his name, you meteorologist uh, folks, but if you look at computer models during hurricane season, uh, or any time really, there's a good chance you know his website, tropicaltidbits.com. It's just one of the... Best designed, easiest to use model websites out there, Luke. Don't you agree?
1: Oh, I just love it. And he has things that you won't find. It you know there are several different sites to go to. He has fantastic regions where you can see, uh, you know, looking over the entire North Atlantic. He has some products that you won't find anywhere else that are specific to tropical meteorology it's outstanding i just i just love it all right well, we're going to talk
0: out. to levi here in just a second uh, but let me remind you once again we're recording this on wednesday august 1st 2018. if you're listening at some point in the future you've got to tune in to localtan.com check the max tracker app or the local 10 weather app or of course watch us on um, local 10 in south florida and a reminder that the podcast is sponsored by your neighbors at the Miccosukee tribe visit them at so uh, today starts the real heart of the hurricane season, and uh, just about every really big storm that's hit the U.S. has happened in August, September, and October, and that's why we pay a lot more attention. Although, like I said, September and October for South Florida, uh, let, let's since we obviously had Andrew. And, and Cleo will say, all right, the very end of August, September, mm. and October are the, uh, the peaks for South Florida. But the ramp up of likelihood likelihoodness uh, begins today. Although, if you look out in the tropical Atlantic, Dead. Nada.
1: Not <laughs> Nothing there. Zilch, man.
0: It's, uh, it's really stunning, and I'm going to be interested to, to get Levi's take here in just a moment, how spectacularly, dead the atlantic is and even the caribbean even though the caribbean the water is warming the the uh, atmospheric conditions the wind shear is really unfavorable mm-hmm. so it's uh, really pretty uh, pretty amazing so anyway we'll talk about uh, a lot more about that in uh, just a moment but last week if you were if you listen to our podcast number six we had an amazing young meteorologist uh, meteorological scientist on uh, named Dr. Michael Ventress, who's uh, now working with the weather company outside Boston. And uh, he really added dramatically to our understanding of these phenomena called uh, the MJO and Kelvin waves. Uh, and our awareness of all that started when he was still in college. Now this week, we have, I, I think, uh, even a younger amazing uh, meteorological scientist who's still working on his PhD. Uh, Most uh, professional and amateur meteorologists know his website, TropicalTidbits.com. His name is Levi Cowan, and he's working on his Ph.D. in meteorology at Florida State University. Yay, Levi, under the renowned professor Dr. Bob uh, Hart. And and Bob, for meteorologists that know what I'm talking about, uh, Bob is really responsible for the phase space diagrams that we look at uh, during subtropical storms and and um, and like that to figure out sort of how tropical a system is and uh, bob is quite uh, quite a guy in in uh, meteorology so levi I'm lucky to be working with bob I'm sure all right so let's uh, bring on uh, levi kaun from fsu hey levi how you doing
2: hi brian thanks so much for having me
0: uh, you're very welcome. It's a pleasure to have you, have you on. Now, before we talk about Tropical Tidbits, uh, tell us about what you're doing there, uh, what's your focus of the Ph.D., and how did a guy from Alaska end up at Florida State?
2: Sure. So, uh, yeah, I grew up in Alaska, loved snow. Um, that was really what got me into weather, I guess, was winter storms. And then somewhere along the way, I saw enough hurricane coverage on TV. I think the satellite pictures probably got me. The first storm I really remember uh, identifying with was Hurricane Isabel uh, watching that on AccuWeather satellite maps back in the day um, was the, the first storm I remember tracking closely and then I, I kind of fell in love with the tropics after that and that's the reason I came to FSU uh, it's a great hurricane school and uh, as you said Bob Hart is one of the best to work with down here so I came to work with him and I'm currently studying for my PhD how uh, hurricanes interact with the airflow in the upper atmosphere the upper troposphere we call it and how it interacts with jet streams and what we call upper-level troughs and such and how that uh, modifies hurricane intensity and if we can gain any predictability out of those interactions.
0: All right, well, we'll talk about that more in just a moment, but let's talk about Tropical Tidbits for a second. How did that website, TropicalTidbits.com, come into the picture?
2: Well, for a long time, I I was a blogger on a site called Wonderground that many meteorologists know um used to be a really big blog. Yeah, me really too, <laughs> actually. Yeah, indeed. You you were there for quite a while. And um, I, I wrote a blog there, and I started making YouTube videos, uh, doing forecast discussions on the current uh, tropical weather in mostly the Atlantic Basin. And uh, eventually I, I wanted to make my own website to host those blogs, and that's how the website really came to be when I was first learning how to code. And it sort of grew from just the blogs into uh, – A platform for me to develop um, data tools for both my own use and others. And as I've learned how to code over the years, this site was launched six years ago now, I've just added to it progressively and it's been kind of my pet project ever since.
1: You're constantly adding new uh, data, new features to tropical tidbits. One of the more recent ones that uh, I use every day now is the 700 to 400 millibar relative humidity. I love that product. So how do you fit in all this work that you put into the website with your school program? I know you're a busy guy, and uh, are you, you thinking maybe you could make a career out of it, out of the website and development?
2: Well, it was a lot easier in undergrad when I had more time. It's definitely not true in grad school that I I can put as much time into it as I would like to. That's for sure. I have a very long to-do list. There are about 80 items on it right now. Um, But I would love to continue improving it. Uh, The site does sustain itself monetarily now, mainly due to the generosity of some of my users, which has been really mind-blowing to me. Um, So it, it runs itself. It pays for itself, which is nice for a grad student because we don't, you know, have that much means. So... It's it's really fun, and I hope it can persist into the future. I'm not exactly sure what will become of it, but I would love to continue tending to it and making YouTube videos as long as I can.
0: So, without giving away any you know, trade secrets, can you tell us what people look at most? Do you know the metrics when when they go to your site? I mean, do they just you know, if you look, click on on the models, you get the, the GFS precip map is that it or is there something that really stands out as the kind of most popular thing on the site
2: well it is heavily weighted toward the gfs probably mainly because it is the first model that shows because it has the most products and the the free euro data is not uh, expansive enough for me to feature it as the main model so the gfs is there Surprisingly, I've discovered that whatever you put first on a region, for example, if they open up the Atlantic Basin and look, the very first map they see is the one they'll tend to stick to. Um, Only a certain fraction of users actually explore all the other maps that are available. I suppose some people like seeing a general rainfall map or something and then just looking at that if that's what's presented. So I could actually change the defaults and change what is the most popular graphic on the fly
1: if I wanted to. Just a few moments ago, you said that you have a to-do list of over 80 items. So um, maybe what are some of those and what's coming next for Tropical Tidbits?
2: Sure. Well, a lot of those are some mundane bug fixes, but some features I do want to come out with at some point are some additional regions that people have requested. Actually, outside the tropics, I've had a lot of requests for Arctic regions and um, better regions for Africa and the South Pacific. Um, So... I would like to get some more regions out some more products for those there are some tropical products I would like to get out for meteorologists specifically uh, products uh, to aid in diagnosing subtropical cyclone formation um, which is less common but uh, there's some great research out there in recent years that has guided me towards some maps that I could make that could be useful and uh, I'd like to add some features for my supporters so that they can disable ads if they're supporting the site and, and things of that nature.
0: Good so, idea. so Levi, you said uh, in your research you're you're looking at how uh, upper atmosphere winds uh, interact with tropical cyclones. Is this is kind of a, a good draft, good trough, bad trough kind of uh, kind of idea? Trying to figure out when a dip in the jet stream comes along and it actually enhances the uh, tropical system because it enhances the outflow but it doesn't create uh, so much shear and what the parameters are that I'm sure that's uh, uh, only a subset but that comes up a lot
2: Mm -hmm. my research did start with sort of the good trough bad trough idea at the time when I started my PhD the subject had not really been touched very much since uh, a a University of Albany student named uh, Deborah Hanley in 2001 it had been a while and before that, it was really work in the 1980s that had dived into that topic. Um, but since then, uh, coincident with my PhD, some students at UAlbany have also tackled this problem. Michael Fisher, Casey Carano, and we've all been kind of doing work in the same vein. And uh, they're they're looking at uh, how how troughs influence TC intensity. And I've sort of branched off a little bit now into looking at the jet part a little more specifically because uh, very little research has been done on identifying jet streams near TCs, and jets and troughs tend to go together because troughs are just a curved airflow near the TC, and a jet is usually a part of that airstream. And uh, that that's what I'm trying to focus on a little more directly now.
1: Is it fair to say that you, you could just keep adding products to your website forever? I mean, uh, it, there's a story that uh, I think, Brian, you talked about that uh, earlier this week on TV about the 26 degree Celsius line uh, in the Atlantic. Uh, for those of you that are listening, that's a very important line because it's kind of the the delineation between being conducive for hurricane or tropical storm development versus being too cold. So that's warm water, and you want it to be if you weren't tropical cyclone development even warmer than that probably but anyway that line is further south this year than it is on average and forget about last year where uh it was it was uh, further north so what that basically does is it compresses or squeezes uh, just a very narrow area for Atlantic systems to develop uh and they just have less room to form so it felt like that's maybe something that you could add to your site what do you think about you know that or really the point is you could add and add and add to your website is that the plan
2: Yes, whenever I have the time, it really comes down to priority. There are many ideas that I've been given, and people have such great suggestions all the time, and it mainly comes down to, to, to what I have time and inspiration to implement. You know, some days I don't want to code, and some days I do, and I try to get... Uh, I try to implement as much of the feedback as I do receive. Uh, like I said, people have great ideas, and I would love to keep adding as much as I can. There's never there's never an end to the things that could be done. I, I would love to do so much more.
0: Eliva, hey, how does the atmosphere in the ocean in the Atlantic uh, strike you this year? You heard at the beginning of our podcast I was talking about the the just remarkable difference between this year and last year, but what's your take on on how the uh, – uh, system and the season are setting up.
2: Yeah, it is uh, as you said, pretty dead out there at the moment. This is probably the least favorable configuration we've seen since 2015, when we had a very strong El Nino in the Pacific. And uh, this year, the Atlantic's very cold. You mentioned that 26 degree line is a farther south, which is an indication that the water is colder than normal. And by a sizable margin, one to two degrees in what we call the main development region, where most hurricanes form. Um, August through October and that's that tends to make the atmosphere more stable and less conducive to thunderstorm activity and since hurricanes need thunderstorms to form that's a a pretty unfavorable signal for an active hurricane season but of course that mean that doesn't mean no storms will form um, or that they won't hit land but we're likely to see a, a less active than usual year from what we see right now.
1: One of my favorite, I wouldn't say one of my favorite part of your website is your video discussions. You are a wizard at breaking technical complex systems, tropical cyclones down into very digestible, um, you know, ideas of what they're going to do next. You break it down with a very organized pattern. So you just have this terrific analysis and discussion on anything that would threaten land as far as a tropical cyclone goes. And. Uh, I would say few scientists explain technical information as clearly as you do. So uh, where do you get your communication skills from? How did you develop that?
2: Well, I, well, thank you, first of all. Uh, I definitely could do better at it, but it seems to have been uh, successful enough on the YouTube channel. But um, I think... Probably the fact that I grew up doing a lot of reading helped a lot uh, with verbal skills and whatnot. Children who read a lot more tend to be better at communication in general. And uh, it's, it's just something that I started doing because I was inspired by other people who did videos about a decade ago at AccuWeather because they, for a long time, had one of the largest platforms for discussion videos for meteorologists that were a little more in-depth than just what you see on the television. And I developed an appetite for that, and I wanted to do it myself. And I've discovered over time that there's a sizable chunk of people in the general public who really enjoy a little bit more explanation of what's going on so that they feel like they kind of understand the conditions and context behind the forecast that's being fed to them. And I think it actually helps develop a lot of trust between a forecaster, a TV meteorologist, and their audience when they are explaining things uh, the way the Weather Channel does or the way I try to do, uh, I think it really develops a nice relationship between the media and the public.
0: Are you thinking back to the the videos that Joe Bastardi used to do, actually? And, and there were a number of other people at, at AccuWeather that used to do those videos, too.
2: Yeah, exactly. Uh, Joe and his colleagues there, I was an AccuWeather professional subscriber for several years, and those videos were something I really latched onto as a
0: kid. So uh, the heart of your site, uh, Levi, are obviously the models. Wh- what's your thought about the, the models, and do you think they're, they're going to continue to get significantly better, or are we coming up against some sort of predictil- uh, predictability barrier that means that improvements are really going to be incremental um, looking, you know, some few to several years in the future?
2: Well, that's a really interesting question. Uh, models continue to develop higher and higher resolution over time. It's really amazing how much has, has changed in just 10 years. Back when Hurricane Katrina was around in 2005, uh, our current American model, the GFS, was a, a much coarser model, which means it couldn't even really resolve hurricanes and, and, and generate hurricanes in the computer simulation that even looked like hurricanes. But now it can. So can the European model that people hear so much about. And uh, the question is, well, are they going to continue being able to improve? Resolution only gives you so much skill. A A lot of the errors in model forecasts are derived from uncertainty in the initial state of the atmosphere. So what is going on now? What is the state of the atmosphere now? Just tiny uncertainties in that knowledge can cascade throughout a forecast and inevitably corrupt any kind of prediction that we make. So that's why we can't fundamentally predict weather more than maybe two weeks in advance at the very best case in uh, for most for most storms. And that'll probably continue to be true as we head into the future. There is definitely hope for more improvement. We haven't stalled yet, but there is some evidence that we might be slowing down in our skill improvement. We need a few more years to know statistically whether that's true. But the improvements we are making in hurricane forecasting might start to Asymptote to toward uh, something that's a little more stable less less quick improvement but probably still improving over time
1: I assume everybody always asks you uh, what's your favorite model to forecast hurricanes or or do you have an answer to that favorite
2: model no I, I often get the question what is the best model and I think that's an ill phrased question because Every model can have a great forecast, and every model can have a busted forecast, and that's one of the key aspects of hurricane forecasting is that relying on any one model is usually a mistake because every model has problems, every model has quirks, and using what we call an ensemble, a group of models, is almost always better because then you get to balance the biases that you know each individual model has, and then look at a number of possible outcomes and then using uh, meteorological knowledge decide what is most likely and that's almost always a better approach so for me there is no favorite model I do have some favorite funny models that are a little quirky such as the Canadian and uh, the current version of the GFS can be a little bit funny at times as well so sometimes we get a little bit of a, a little bit of a nerdy laugh out of some of those forecasts but every model uh, has its problems but they are remarkably good today compared to how they have been in the past.
0: Yeah, anybody that's been forecasting hurricanes for for any period of time really and uh, look has been looking at the models can remember instances where the European model for example, which is on average the the best uh, global model produced in the world, uh, you know, had completely the wrong answer while the GFS had the right answer uh, on occasion. Right? So you, as you say, you can't hang your hat even on king euro
2: that's correct and you know there there have been some cases now where certain situations the the european has proved to to have issues and it's actually one of the worst global models for predicting hurricane strength uh, it's normally called the king because of its track prowess right. but it's actually not very good at predicting intensity
0: right exactly levi before we let you go uh... Because we asked all meteorologists this. Was there a weather event, a particular weather event? You said Hurricane Isabel, what was, that was 2001 or 2002 that got you in uh, 2003. It got you into um, uh, tropical meteorology, but was there a, a weather event uh, that you experienced or saw that you know kind of got you into meteorology in general?
2: I get this question too, but it's, I honestly have never had a great answer because I remember enjoying weather in preschool Uh, for a long time. I didn't know I wanted to be a meteorologist. I probably didn't know until I was eight when I got my first rain gauge. Uh, But really it was just generally loving snowstorms. I believe no particular one, just loving winter weather growing up in Alaska and then seeing hurricane stuff on TV just turned me onto the tropics at some point and not not sure there's a single point that I can identify. Just the general exposure to it really made me fall in love with it.
0: Well, it's a good thing you liked snow since you were living in Alaska. All right, Levi, thanks so much for being here. I'm, uh, we, uh, we love your site, and we hope everybody goes to TropicalTidbits.com. And if you're interested in weather models and when storms are threatening, uh, Levi's analyses are, are fantastic. And just as uh, proud as I can be that you're at Florida State and you're a Seminole. Thanks, Levi. Thank you guys very much. All I right. appreciate it. All right, take care. All right, Levi Cowen, who is uh, just a super, increasing superstar in the meteorological Man, community. Bright
1: guy. Just uh, listen to him speak. Yeah, yeah.
0: It, it is. It's a it's a wonderful thing that the issue of scientists not being able to be clear uh, is is a significant issue actually mm-hmm. in in meteorology and in other technical fields. Uh, but uh, Levi, however it happened really is one of the clearest speakers that uh, you're going to come across.
1: I've heard before, and it it seems to make sense, those that understand a subject best can explain it most clearly and in the simplest terms, and uh, he does a fantastic job of that.
0: Yeah, he really does. All right, reminder, the podcast is sponsored by your neighbors at the Miccosukee Tribe. Check them out at miccosukee.com. See all the things that they are up to here in South Florida. All right, so uh, we're— Uh, Heading into the heart of the hurricane season now, and uh, we thought that we have been talking about a South Florida hurricane uh, each week here, a different one, and since we're going into August, we really have slim pickings. We're going to (laughs) save talking about Hurricane Andrew until we get a little bit closer to the Andrew anniversary. So the other one, uh, and it it came up at the end of August, actually, was Hurricane Cleo. And and, uh, all right, Luke, you've been looking into... To uh, Cleo, which I actually remember, Cleo. I was up in Melbourne at the time, and Cleo came right up uh, US1. You didn't go this, surfing
1: next to this one, did you?
0: you no, know, not in this one. It was the one the next year. But, <laughs> but, but uh, right up US1, all the way from Miami uh, to Melbourne, and then it kind of petered out and went off uh, shore. At that point, but it but it was significant, and it was. I mean, I loved it. Of course, I thought it was the the most fun thing to come along in a long time.
1: Well, the big thing with it, it's the last time that an eye had passed right over downtown Miami. Yeah, it has passed it. Yeah, it's
0: the last time that we in in Miami have had an eye of a hurricane come directly over.
1: Well, here's a story. We had a Category Four, strong, high-end Category Four, uh, that had smashed Guadalupe. It killed 14. There was a bunch of hundreds of homes that were demolished. So it was a a big bad storm as it uh, rolled through the Caribbean, went to the Northern Caribbean. And this is interesting. Along its way, it was being monitored by a Navy Super Constellation Hurricane Hunter. This Hurricane Hunter had been badly damaged, so badly damaged, in fact, that they had to scrap it after this mission, and uh, seven crewmen... They were injured as they were sampling how strong this hurricane was. Do you know what the story was? Did it just get beat up? or?
0: Well, the thing was that they flew lower back then. Oh. Uh, and so they didn't really understand the, how to fly safely. And, they, of course, they didn't have the instrumentation back then. so in order to see uh, and, and estimate the wind speed, uh, what they did is the meteorologists on board the plane would look out a window. Well, in the Super Connie, they would look out the front of the plane and look down at the, at the sea surface. And there was a chart that uh, showed different sea surface sea surface states and an estimate of the Beaufort number that, that would go with that, which would estimate the wind speed. So that's how they estimated the wind speed at the surface. Uh, and they had kind of a crude way of measuring the wind speed at the flight level. So... Uh, in, in order to do all that, they did things that that they don't do now. But the Constellation was a big plane. If you can picture old airplanes, as a kind with the three tails that stuck up on the on the back of it. So mm-hmm. you know, back in the, it was a passenger plane as well. So it was a very common kind of uh, airplane you'd see flying around. But I, that was during this ultra intensification phase uh, uh, moving through the Caribbean just south of Hispaniola.
1: So just looking at the sea surface, I guess you know the wash, how maybe violent the waves are, that can't be very accurate, is it? No, is it but it,
0: but it gives you an idea and and there had been a lot of research into it. I mean, how do you estimate what the wind speed is? It, it, even in my time, we didn't have the instruments on board the plane the uh, the called the SFMR that actually measures the radiation coming off of the sea spray and then that gets calibrated to estimate the wind. That's a very recent development.
1: So and that's highly accurate, isn't it? Uh,
0: yeah, that's. I mean, there's an error bar around that as well, but relative to looking out the window and looking to see how the, the water looks it's a whole different scale <laughs> that sounds like something
1: but, you But the way
0: it evolved was they they would take the flight level winds and and reduce them to an estimate of the surface winds sure And that became the sort of standard way to estimate what the winds were over the surface.
1: So it seems like when we're talking about August storms, we're usually, and I I shouldn't say usually, but sometimes talking about small storms. Andrew was a small storm. Uh, Cleo is a small storm. The one from last week was a very big storm, so it's not always the case. But this was a small but vicious term is uh, what you'll find if you read uh, uh, the Hurricane Almanac. And uh, it was over Haiti. And it made a surprise turn and went north, and that put it on its track toward Florida. And I'm sure that the—it seems that the turn today still isn't very well understood because it kind of goes against what the rest of the pattern was. Is that correct?
0: Yeah. Well, a lot of research was actually done into trying to understand why the storm that was moving east to west through the Caribbean suddenly, seemingly— turned north and went over the Tiburon Peninsula in, in Haiti, which is that southwestern part of Haiti that sticks out that's quite mountainous, and then ended up going o- over Cuba. Uh, you know, there was a well-established high-pressure system uh, across the Atlantic, but there was another high that was out there uh, just to the northeast of the hurricane, and it seems like somehow that became the stronger influence, a smaller uh, high-pressure cell there, and and that— Uh, deflected it to the north. But just given the kind of analysis, upper-air analysis that was available at that time, uh, they they were certainly surprised in real time that it happened.
1: Okay, so something that can happen to really take the muscle away from hurricanes is when they run into mountains, as it did when it passed over Haiti, just kind of shredded the storm up, its circulation weakened, and it emerged, barely a hurricane uh, on the other side as it was approaching Florida. Something that uh, is cool or, or fascinating with this story is there was some new weather technology. I assume WSR-57Ds had been deployed, that's the weather radar, a whole network of them uh, to monitor, you know, you use them as we use radars and you can track hurricanes with those when they get close enough. But also they had the hurricane hunting technology, so a lot of surveillance on this storm uh, from fairly constant airplane monitoring and then also there were two new satellites, is that correct?
0: Yeah, there were two satellites that that could see the storm, but in 1964, there was no real-time satellite coverage. You'd get a picture kind of after the fact, after it came down, and I came in on a fax machine kind of thing. So it's not like you had satellite surveillance of the storm. But you did. They did when it came over—so it went over Haiti, the the peninsula in Haiti. Then it went over Cuba, and that's what—the combination of that is what really tore it up. So now it's coming north— Heading toward the east coast uh, of Florida, or very close to the east coast, and they have hurricane hunters out there. And once it got into range of, of Key West and Miami's uh, WSR-57s, um, uh, it wasn't a digital. It wasn't yes. digital that, no at that D. time. It was no D, right? So uh, they 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 could see it, and and I think that that actually gave them more confidence that they knew what was going to happen because they had an unusual amount of data those those radars were called 57 because they're 1957 vintage but they you know only relatively recently been deployed and really the only significant hurricane they'd had was Donna in 1960 which was a very significant hurricane yeah. that they were able to use with the radar so anyway it was it was a relatively new Science to do this.
1: So perhaps because they have this relatively new science, they felt overconfident in the forecast. And the National Hurricane Center director at the time forecast this is the most precise forecast I think I've ever heard. The was to stay 22 miles offshore with winds 45 to 50 miles per hour, give a five-mile-per-hour mm-hmm. range, uh, affecting the East Coast. So if you were on the East Coast, you would see 45 to 55 or 50-mile-per-hour 50 winds. So highly precise and that's not the way it went down.
0: No. So what happened was the storm is moving north from uh, Cuba, and it's kind of coming in the general direction of Miami, but it looks, if you just draw a straight line the way it was going, it's going to be offshore. Mm-hmm. And like I said, they're looking at it on the radar, and they feel confident they, they know what's happening. And the uh, aircraft that's out there finds that the strongest winds are on the east side of the storm, so not the Florida side of the storm, uh, the Bahamas side of the storm is where the strongest winds are, which is not an uncommon uh, configuration. Well, at 10 o'clock in the evening on the 26th of uh, August, 1964, they, or the reconnaissance plane uh, is, has to leave. I guess their, their, their session was up, they were gonna run out of fuel, whatever it was. Anyway, they, they left the storm. So in the last three hours, they only had radar coverage, but they had good radar coverage of the storm. Well, in that last three hours, Cleo came over the Gulf Stream mm. and came close to the coast and intensified dramatically. And the uh, strong winds wrapped all the way around the storm. And as storms often do when they're intensifying, it kind of jogged around. We've, and, you know Now, we with the high-resolution satellites, we see the hurricanes never go in a straight line. They weave back and forth, And it turns out that when it got to right up to Key Biscayne, it just weaved to the left a little bit. And that weave was 20 miles worth of weave, something like that, and 20, 30 miles. And that brought the storm right over Key Biscayne and right over downtown Miami.
1: Okay, what kind of damage are we talking here? I see the numbers. 125 million in damage in 1964 dollars. So... What did it look like in Miami?
0: Well, there was a lot of damage around the eastern side of the city, and not South Dade so much, and not uh, west of uh, the Turnpike, for example, okay. in in Dade County. Uh, in, in Broward County, there wasn't much west of the Turnpike in, in Broward in 1964. but it, So you had a lot of damage to windows at the hotels in Miami Beach, uh, and you had uh, the WIOD transmitter tower, which was right next to the Channel 7 studios there uh, in Biscayne Bay that uh, fell over. And it was, it was damaged throughout the city, and the power was out 80% or so of South Florida. So it was a significant uh, event, and the estimate at the time was winds in the 100 to 110-mile-an-hour range were waiting. On the reanalysis, so yeah. uh, our friends at the at NOAA at at the uh, Hurricane Research Division and uh, where they AOML, where they're they're heading up this reanalysis uh, project, were are waiting on the 60s. So I would not be surprised to see the uh, storm elevated in in intensity a little bit because it was a small storm, and when they do the pressure versus radius of maximum winds analysis. Since the pressure was decently low, the radius was small, and I'm just doing this off the top of my head. My sense is it was more than 105 mile an hour storm. It's gonna calculate out to that. But there were really very few measurements that were reliable at the uh, National Weather Service or the Weather Bureau building at the time, which was over near the airport, 27th Avenue and and the airport expressway uh, in today's geography. They, the wind instrument blew off the roof mm. or blew over, and anyway, it failed. So they didn't get good readings there. And at the airport, it was just a little bit too far west because it was a small storm. Mm-hmm. So uh, there weren't good measurements So you know, now with the reanalysis, they, they do it more in a, a theoretical sense to figure out what the maximum wins were.
1: A couple interesting footnotes. There was only one reported injury, significant injury, that was a broken arm from a flying, uh, flying door, actually. And for the first time in the history, I guess up to this point, the Fort Lauderdale Daily News couldn't print its newspaper. I don't know if that had happened since, but that was the first time that they couldn't print their news.
0: Yeah, and the the uh, issue that you talked about of uh, Gordon Dunn was the was the meteorologist in charge at the time, and he was a terrific hurricane guy. I don't want to in any way have anybody think that, that he didn't know what he was doing because he was instrumental in developing the, the, the program. He he was the one that uh, indicated during the evening that they had confidence that the storm was going to stay 20, mm-hmm. 22 miles offshore. Well, they got a lot of criticism uh, for that, and uh, as a result of that, they actually, the, the uh, Weather Bureau at the time, the National Weather Bureau, uh, indicated that this should not, we should not be that precise, and their language was the bulletins issued during the evening attempted to indicate an expected position of the storm in more precise language than can be justified by our present ability to forecast. That was in 1964, and I think that that message rings true today, mm-hmm. that w- I think we we do get uh, more confident than we should about uh, hurricanes and, and where they're going to move exactly and, and where they're going to be one day, two days, three days in advance. In this case, it was only a matter of a few hours in advance.
1: Yeah, absolutely hard lesson to learn, and we keep learning it, it seems. Yeah, the
0: good thing is that by the time all that happened, it was getting dark. People were as prepared as they were going to be. It was more they were surprised than they could have prepared more, as you said. This was not an especially deadly hurricane. didn't have a big storm surge. didn't have a huge storm surge that did a tremendous amount of damage, uh, unlike the storm coming along the following in mm-hmm. uh, Hurricane uh, Betsy, which was a different thing. All right, well, anyway, that was Hurricane Cleo. It, it was um, uh, an interesting event, and especially interesting because... It was the last of seven hurricanes in the 20th century to come directly over downtown Miami and the last hurricane period that where the eye has come over uh, downtown Miami. So it used to happen all the time and it hasn't happened now in 54 years. Mm. Crazy, Crazy. Yes. Uh, if you have any questions you'd like us to address here on the podcast, uh, you can send them to us at weatherpod at WPLG.com. And let me remind you that the podcast is sponsored by your neighbors at the Miccosukee Tribe. Visit them at miccosukee.com. They've got all kinds of uh, things going on. So uh, we're sending Luke off to go get married. And yep. uh, <laughs> and he's not going to be with us uh, for a couple of weeks, but we'll be here with another podcast coming up next week and we're going to have dr phil klotzbach on talking about the seasonal forecast he'll have his update for the rest of the hurricane season and we'll uh, dive into that so we hope you'll join us here on the podcast i'm brian norcross we're here at the local 10 wplg podcast studio in miami and you have a good week